Well, how are we doing in the area of temptation? Are we gaining victory or are we feeling defeat? We want to we wanna live in such a way that we resist temptation. We want to live godly lives. Sometimes when te- temptation comes, we just fold. We fail. And I mean, admit it. We, something happens and we fail. And we say, well, I just, I couldn't help it or I was unable to resist it. We already know from the scripture that we can help it and those kind of things. So what do we do? I, I like Oscar Wilde's uh, statement. He said, you know, I can resist everything except temptation. And it's true. As we continue this morning, we're going to be in the application part. We're going to start seeing some practical things, but we're, we're going to really hit the part about what difference does it make. We've been seeing the three big questions. What is temptation? Where does temptation come from? And how do we deal with temptation? We saw that temptation is actually the pull to do wrong. It's not necessarily sin, because Jesus was tempted in all points, hit without sin. So temptation, we always saw that thing where you see it, you want it, you what? Take it and hide it. If you see and want, sometimes the seeing and wanting is not sin. It's the pull to sin. That's the temptation. It's when we follow through with that is where it gets bad. So we said that temptation is the pull to do wrong. Where does it come from? It comes from the devil, the world, the flesh. The devil controls the fallen world. The fallen world affects our flesh. And we saw that kind of thing. And so that's where it comes from. So it, it actually begins within with our flesh, but it's affected from without. And so uh, we saw those who had victory. We saw those who failed. One thing about it, as we study the Bible, we see this, that we can fail or we can have victory. I mean, it's possible. Sometimes people say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do something like that. And the Bible tells us, take heed lest you think you stand, you what? You fall. So don't ever say, I'm not going to do this. Don't ever say, I'm not going to do this particular sin. Don't ever say, I would never do that. Because you don't know. If, you put, if we put ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, we will do what? The wrong thing. So, so, so we, we can fail. The other thing is, sometimes we realize we can have victory. Because sometimes we say things like, well, there's just no hope for me. Or at least in this area, there's no hope for me. And those kind of things. Because we know that, that there are certain things, like you could put all kind of alcohol in front of me and say, are you tempted with that? And I go, I don't even like it. Right? So um, that's not tempting me. But something else might. And for you, that might be a great temptation where something else wouldn't. So when we start looking at our lives, we can't say, well, I would never do that. And I think you're stupid if you do that. We'll say, well, but yeah, but that's not a pull for you, but it really is a pull for me. And those kind of things. And so we've been saying we can fail, but we can also have victory. We saw David. If a man after God's own heart can fail, what does that mean for us? What Joseph, we saw a guy who didn't fail. We say, if Joseph can do it, we can too. So how do we deal with temptation? That's really where we are now. We looked at several things, and, and here's a question that some people ask. And it's the same question that goes back when somebody says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, what does he give you? Eternal life. How long does that last? So the moment you trust Christ, you're saved forever. So it doesn't matter how you live. You could say, well, it doesn't matter how you live as far as your eternal destiny and the fact that you're a child of God and you're saved forever, but does it matter how we live as a believer? Yeah. Okay. And then other people say things like, listen, listen, if, 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 we are, if, we're, if we're going to heaven, and we are, if, and, and really we know after all our studies that our end place is not heaven. It's, a new, it's the kingdom on the earth and then a new heavens and a new earth and, a new, and the, the eternal kingdom and the new Jerusalem and all of that. But let's say that we're destined for the new Jerusalem. So does it really matter if we are tempted and fall? Does it really matter? I mean, if, if, if it doesn't determine 
our eternal destiny, and it doesn't. Now, there are a lot of people who think it does, and they'll say things like, if you don't live right, you lose it. And so their motivation for living right is, is a loss of salvation. Our motivation for living right is not a loss of salvation. It's a loss of rewards and fellowship with God and those kind of things. So we're going to talk more about that uh, this morning. So some people raise this question, look, so if we fall, we're still going to heaven. What difference does it really make? Why should we deal with temptation? Why should we care? If, if so, there's an area that you fall and you say, that's just me. I just do that. I just do that. Well, here's the bottom line. Sinful life has consequences. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If he sows of the flesh, he reaps corruption. If he sows of the Spirit, he reaps eternal life. Eternal life there is not talking about the, the distance of it, but it's talking about the quality. So the bottom line is, how we live now, there are consequences. So if we were to say, I don't know why we're talking about all this temptation stuff, because it doesn't really matter, because whether you attempt it or not, whether you fail or not, it doesn't matter. I have eternal life. I'm going to be with Jesus Christ. And so what difference does it make? Well, it makes a big difference because the, our life, a sinful life, has consequences. So we're going to raise some questions. And we're going to go, I think, fairly quickly well, as we look at it this day. So why should we deal with temptation? And what happens when we sin? So let's talk about it today. And this lesson is dealing with the consequences of sin. So here comes the temptation. We see it, then what? We want it. And then we say to ourselves, I, I, I want it. So what difference does it make whether we then do it or not? Because what happens when we do it? And we already know immediately what do we do? We hide it. But what happens? So let's talk about it, and we're going to look at some things. Why should we deal with temptation? What happens when we sin? The very first thing that happens the moment you sin is this, that sin takes us out of fellowship with God. It, and, and by the way, not only in fellowship with God, but sin takes us out of fellowship with, with each other. So, so when you're out of fellowship with God, you're out of fellowship with other believers. That's why many times when people get sin in their lives, not only they don't they don't come to church, not just because God's there, God's everywhere, but because other believers are there, and they're out of fellowship with them, and so they don't really want to be with them. So the very first thing we see is it takes us out of fellowship. Now, I want you to understand, it's not out of a relationship, but a fellowship. We know that when we trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, we become a child of God. We have an eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. We have eternal life. So sin does not take us out of our relationship with God, but it takes us out of our fellowship. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8. Uh, look at verse 6. This, we just want to just see this. Paul is just writing. He says, for the mindset on the flesh, that means living by the flesh, is what? What does it say? Who's looking at the passage? Anybody? Yeah. What is it? It's death. The mindset on the flesh is death. When you live according to the flesh, guess what? You die. We're not talking about physical death there. We're not even talking about spiritual death there. What the Bible calls that is a temporal aspect. You're out of fellowship with God. That's death. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You don't want to live according to the flesh because that's sin. Because if you're living according to the flesh, what happens? You must what? Die. You must die. So there is a, there is a death aspect. Well, sometimes we don't think about that. When we live in the flesh, we die temporally. And that's talking about our fellowship with God. We already know there's a spiritual death. 
that people come into the world spiritually dead. We already know there's a physical death that people die physically. We, we know there's an eternal second death which people are separated from God forever. But there is a temporal death that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 in which when a person sins as a believer, <clears throat> they are out of fellowship with God in a sense since death is what? Separation. When you're separated from God in a fellowship way, you die. You die temporally. So that's the first, the first thing of it is that we die. We're, we're out of fellowship. Now, I want you to know, and, and, and First John starts off by saying how important it is that we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship one with another. But the moment you sin, number one, you, you out of fellowship. We're out of fellowship with God. We're out of fellowship with each other, and we die. We're dead. We're separated from God. Not eternally, not in a relationship but in a fellowship. And that is big. Now, I want you to understand, I'm going to go through this clearly quickly, but that affects us. Being out of fellowship with God affects us both now, right now, and in the future. So let's say that, I, let's say that any of us in this room right now, we have, we have sinned in some way. And now, as a believer, we've not lost our relationship at all, but we've lost our fellowship, and we have died temporally. And so what are the consequences now, right now, because we're out of fellowship with God, what are the consequences of being out of fellowship with God right now? First of all, in the now. Well, there's several things. The first one is this, that God's going to discipline us. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every child he receives. The word chastens and scourge, the word chasten there means to discipline. It doesn't necessarily mean it in a bad way. It might be like, I, you know, if you're running, if you're at sports and somebody says, okay, I want us to get ready for the football season, so I want you guys to run a bunch of 40-yard dashes. That's not punishment. That's training. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. You know, chastens and scourges. The word chasten means to discipline, but scourge means to take the hide off. Uh, it... It was sort of like when my grandmother grabbed the switch, made you go get the switch, and then, you know, she had your hand. You couldn't run. You're running, but you're not getting away because, you know, for some reason she's right there with you. She's taking the hide off. That's what this word means. This word actually means that when, when you sin, if we don't do something about that sin, if we don't confess our sin and, and get back in the fellowship, it could lead to discipline. It could, there's, a, there's an aspect of something there. We're out of fellowship. Even the discipline that God sends is a, is a good discipline. It's to get us back in the fellowship. So Hebrews 12, so when you're out of fellowship, there's a discipline. Second thing is you can't serve. You lose your service. When we're out of fellowship, we're walking in the flesh, not in the spirit, you're not able to serve. Now you may do something, but, but you're not in fellowship with God. And in a sense, there's, there's no lasting aspect of it. There's nothing in a sense, that good comes out of there. You remember he says, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the things we've done in our body, whether they are good or sometimes bad, sometimes worthless. When you do something, even for God, when you're out of fellowship, it's worthless. You, you're not able to serve in the way that you want to. Remember what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? You can do absolutely nothing. Not some things, but nothing. There's another aspect to when you sin and you're out of fellowship, you lose the joy of salvation. Listen, Happiness deals with circumstances. And you can be happy because we win. We can be sad because we lose. It's all circumstances. But joy deals with our fellowship. And when you're in fellowship with God, you have the joy. When you're out of fellowship with God, you don't have the joy. Sometimes you, you look at your life and you go, I don't know. Things are, I don't know. I'm not happy. I, 
You know, what, what you really aren't is you don't have the joy. And it's the joy of his salvation. You know, I used to say, the joy of your salvation. You know, when David wrote that, he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. God is the one that gives us the salvation, that gives us the joy. And we lose that joy. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, David talks about restoring the joy of your, and he's talking about God's salvation to us. So when you're out of fellowship with God, you don't have joy. Now, you can be happy about something, but you don't have the joy because it comes from the fellowship. And then last but not least is the one we talked about a little bit, and that is death. There's a temporal death. We're out of fellowship. But let me tell you something that the Scripture shows us. And it's not something that we want to really think about, but sometimes this temporal death can result in physical death. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Corinthians were taking the Lord's Supper out of fellowship. Some of them were drunk, some of them, and they were taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul had already told them, when you get ready to take the Lord's Supper, you need to be in fellowship with God. If not, there are going to be consequences. And he ended up saying, because of the fact that you are taking the Lord's Supper out of fellowship, he says, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you what? What's the last part? Sleep. He meant they died. And over in 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, he says, there is a sin unto death. You can do certain sins long enough that there are consequences that you may die physically. And so one of the, con one of the aspects of saying being out of fellowship with God is that you, you could die physically. So think about it. When we're out of fellowship with God right now, there's discipline. We're not able to serve. There's the loss of joy. And it could even be physical death. We already know there's temporal death, but it could even be physical death. Now that's what happens right now. But what about the future? Because... If you live, let's just pretend we lived for the next hour in sin, not confessing our sin, doing things wrong. We already know right then we're out of fellowship. We, we died in a sense. We're not, we don't have the joy. We're not able to serve all those. But what about for the future? You say, well, it doesn't matter for the future. Yeah, because you've just lost an hour, right? And when you stand before Jesus Christ, he's going to go, you know, you lost an hour back over there. And, and so when we think about the future, there's rewards. We're going to talk about this in, uh, in Sunday morning when we look at First uh, Thessalonians this morning. We're just going to look at the book this morning. And we're going to talk about rewards. And we're, we're going to, 1 Corinthians 3, we're going to stand before him and our lives are going to be tested by fire. And he uses an analogy and he says, if, you, if it's wood, hay, or straw, it's going to be burned up. If it's gold, silver, or precious stone, it's going to last. The things last are the things we've done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The things that are burned up are things that we've done in the flesh. If you're living in the flesh... If you're out of fellowship, it's all going to be burned up. So that hour that you didn't, weren't able to do anything, it's gone. It's burned up. 2 Corinthians 5.10, I just quoted it. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for the things that we've done. Actually, be recompensed for the things we've done in this body, whether good or, it says good or bad, but the word actually means worthless. It means like rotten bananas. It's it just, you'd go, oh, golly, get rid of that. That's nothing. That's worthless. And that's what he says. You know that hour? That you're out of fellowship, that day you're out of fellowship, that month you were out of fellowship, that time of your life you're out of fellowship, it's gone. It's gone. That's in the future. That's not just now, that's in the future. And that's why when we stand before Jesus Christ, we want to hear him say, what? Well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to be ashamed at his coming. And we're going to be able to say, oh... Well, what a wasted day, what a wasted hour, what a wasted year, what a wasted month, what, what wasted time that I lived doing things I weren't supposed to do. 
1 John 2.28, he says, Now little children abide in him, stay in fellowship with him, because that when he appears, we'll have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. Now let me tell you this, when we stand before him, he's not bringing up your sins. Because sins are already placed on Christ. But there are things that are worthless. When we were out of fellowship, when we weren't able to serve him, we've just lost it. And it's burned up and it's gone. And we might be ashamed and said, gosh, why didn't, why didn't I live for him? Why didn't I do this? So, sin blocks service and rewards. So, why? What, what happens when we sin? The very first thing is sin breaks our fellowship. And that's a biggie. And from this moment on, every one of us ought to think, okay, right now, if I sin, I die. I, I, I can't serve him. I lose the joy of my salvation. Uh, I'm out of fellowship with him. And not only does that happen now, but this time in the future, when I stand before him, I'm probably going to be ashamed because I don't, I don't have anything to say. And he'd say, well done. So we need to think of that when we sin. And I'm not talking just to you. I'm talking to me. Okay? This, this is killing me too. Okay? So then, what's next? Because the first thing is it breaks our fellowship. What's that? What's after that? It affects our testimony. It affects our testimony in this community. Think about it. When we have sin, we're not able to serve God. We're not able to serve others. People can see our sin. Sometimes it affects our testimony. Sometimes it affects our opportunities to be used by God. What did Jesus say in Matthew? Let your light shine. Let your light shine. In fact, he says in one place, let your light shine before men so that they will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. When even unbelievers, when they see us living righteously and godly, they can glorify God. But, but you know, if we're out of fellowship, we lose that. It affects our testimony. Here's a, here's a passage. Look at this passage. Every time I read this, it's scary. It says, First Corinthians 9, 27, Paul says, I keep my body under subjection. You know, I keep under, I think it's my body under subjection. I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, <coughs> I myself should be a castaway. A castaway. What does that mean? It doesn't mean loss of salvation. In fact, a castaway means a loss of service. Paul actually says that I want to I control my body. I want to control my life. I want to control what I do. I want to control where I go. I want to control what I think. I want to control how I respond to all this. Because I don't want to be castaway, meaning God would say, I'm not going to use you. I'm not going to use you because you're out of fellowship. You're not living for me. You're not growing. And so I just, I'm not going to use you. Listen, what if... God said to you, thanks for coming to church, thanks for being about, but I'm not going to use you. How would you feel about that? Do, do, do every one of us in this room want to be used by God? Then we want to say, God, oh God, if, if you don't want to use me, just take me home. The whole reason we're here is to what? To live for him and to serve him. If he says to you, I'm not going to use you, you could just say, well, then uh, I'm sure you're through with me. Paul says, I don't want to be the castaway. I don't want to be the guy that ran the race for a while and then broke the rules because in that passage, and in, in, uh, let me go back if I can. In 1 Corinthians 9, he starts in that passage and says, uh, run the race. 
He said, everybody runs the race to win the prize. He said, but if you're going to run the race to win the prize, you've got to obey the rules. In other words, you've got to live righteously and godly and do that. And then he said, because if some don't, they get disqualified. And so Paul says, I don't want to get disqualified. I don't want to be cast away or disqualified. It's not a loss of salvation. It's a loss of service. Every one of us in this room. Now, let me tell you, if you said to yourself, I don't care whether I serve God or not, I don't really care. Um, why are you here? Why are we here if we don't care? I would bet every one of you in this room would say, I want my life to count for Christ. That's why I'm here. There's a lot of other places you could be on a Sunday morning. And you have chosen to get up come where other believers are, worship Jesus Christ, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, love one another, and serve one another. It's because you want your lives to count for Jesus Christ. So we've got to be careful because not only does it, when we sin, we're out of fellowship, but when we sin, it affects our testimony. And then here's the third thing. And this is what we see a lot, and that is sin stops our growth. It stops our growth. Romans 8.29 says, His plan is to conform us to the image of His Son. The plan is to be, uh, for us to be like Christ, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when we have sin in our lives, it stops the growth. We're not able to grow. We're not able to become more and more like Christ. That's what we want to be. We want to be like Jesus, right? You remember the Hebrews passage? When he writes to these believers and he says, By this time you ought to be what? teachers. He said, you guys should be teachers. He said, no, somebody's got to go back and teach you, literally in the Greek, the fundamentals, the ABCs. Somebody's got to go back and start you over with the truths of the Bible. That's what he was writing to them. And he said, but by this time, you should be teaching other people. You should be teachers. And there are a lot of Christians been 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 believers for 20 or 30 years, and they don't know anything from the Bible. And there's two... Reasons there. First of all, they've probably gone to a church that never taught anything. But number two, they never started. Maybe, maybe they never started growing. Maybe they never want, and they probably had sin in their lives. And it's so easy to get wrapped up in the sin and stops us. By this time, you should be teach. Sin stunts us. I mean, a believer can be carnal. I teach the class, uh, the 2-2 class, I and mean, some others, but we always talk about this. Listen, you, you can be a believer or unbeliever. Unbeliever is carnal, always. Carnal means fleshly. That's the only operation that an unbeliever has is the flesh. When you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. So either you can be carnal, which is fleshly, or spiritual, which is controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, a person who's a believer can be carnal or spiritual. It can happen. A brand new believer can be spiritual because that means controlled by the Holy Spirit. A brand new believer can be carnal, living by the flesh. A mature, older believer can be carnal, meaning at that moment controlled by the flesh, or he can be spiritual. Now, maturity is over a period of time in which a person is controlled by the Holy Spirit and grows in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So to be a mature Christian takes time. To be a spiritual Christian, it means you're controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so what we want, he said, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be teaching other people. Over time, one who is spiritual can become mature. So what, 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 what happens? What happens when we see in... We're out of fellowship, it affects our testimony, and it stops our growth. Now, I'm going to go real fast to this last part because this is what we're going to be hitting in the next two to three weeks. But what's the plan? 
Well, God has three big aspects of what God's going to do for us. This is his provision, so to speak. You might say it this way. Three big things. He's got promises, provisions, and responsibilities. Okay? This is our response. This is what's going to happen. And the, to have victory over temptation, first of all, there's promises. And we're going to go to this in a little bit. God's promises, we're responsible, victory is possible. Then he has provisions. Look at the provisions for us to have victory. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and God's armor. And then finally, we have our responsibility has to do with our thinking and has to do with our actions. Now, we're going to see that in the next two to three weeks because it's going to take a little bit to go through it. God's promises, he's working in our lives. We're going to see more detail on that next week, of course. We are accountable. That's one of the things that, is, that, that uh, his promise is. You're accountable. We don't always think about that. And then last but not least, victory is possible. So let me think of some applications for us. I didn't want to go into a lot of detail on that. But applications. Let's realize the consequences of sin in our life. What are they? It takes us out of what? Fellowship. It does. The moment you sin, and that affects you when? Now and future. It does. Second, it affects our testimony. You're supposed to be what? What are we supposed to be? Line. We're supposed to be lights in a fallen world. We're supposed to shine. Let your light shine. But well, it affects our testimony. And then finally, it affects, stops our growth. So with that in mind, the second is let's realize that God has made a way for our victory over temptation and sin. He has promises. He has provisions. And he has our responsibilities. And over the next two to three to four weeks, we're going to put those things together and see them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the, the passage. Thank you for the different truths from the Bible. Lord, we know you love us beyond what we could imagine. We know that you don't want us to sin, that when temptation comes, the goal is, is to not to sin. Lord, we've seen clearly today that when we sin, there are consequences. We know that it takes us out of fellowship, and that affects us right now, but it also affects us in the future. We know that it affects our testimony because we, it, we, our lights aren't shining, and we know that it stops our growth. Instead of us becoming a mature believer, we're not growing at all. So, Lord, thank you that you have promises, you have provisions, and you even have responsibility for us. Lord, we pray that in the weeks to come, uh, we'll see not only how, how, how bad it is to sin and the consequences there, but the promises, provisions, and responsibilities you have for us. Uh, Lord, thank you for this body of believers. Use us beyond what we could ask or imagine. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we'll keep going next time. Go to Grow Groups. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great morning. Thank you for that great song. Thank you that you get all the honor and the glory and that everything we do is for your glory. Thank you for a, a great morning in which we worship you for who you are and what you've done, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the eternal God. And what you have done is to pay for the sins by dying on the cross and to conquer death by rising from the grave and being our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our provider, our protector. Lord, as we study First Thessalonians, we know you're coming. You're coming again. And Lord, we know it could be any second. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we want to live for you as we wait for you to come. So as we study, Lord, as we look at First Thessalonians that you would teach us, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, we're just going to look this morning at really a one time at the book of 1 Thessalonians, and next week we're going to actually start for the summer 2 Thessalonians, and we'll go through that verse by verse, passage by passage, but this morning what we're going to do is just look at this letter. Now, Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, and he wrote one letter, and then he wrote a second letter. We'll talk more about that second letter next week, but he wants them to live for Jesus Christ. They're in persecution, right? In fact, as Paul went there, they ran him out of town after he led people to Christ, after the church was formed. And so this church is under great persecution. And they're, they're knowing that Jesus Christ could come at any second. So with that in mind, it, it, he wants them to know how to live as they await for the Savior. And that's one of the key events in our lives as we think about it, that Jesus Christ could come at any time. We look forward to him. He comes in the clouds to get the body of Christ, the church. We call this the rapture. In fact, the next event is the rapture. We call it the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's the questions. While we wait, while we're here, what are we, what are we to be doing while we wait for his return? What are believers to do? Well, as we look at 1 Thessalonians, Paul is going to give some information about this. In fact, this letter deals with the return of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier, that every chapter, and I'm going to show you this in just a minute, every chapter ends with the return of Christ. And so as we look at this, we want to be encouraged, we want to be informed, we want to be challenged to live out uh, as uh, live for, for God as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we just finished the book of Daniel, and that Old Testament prophecy book was incredible because it not only showed the character of Daniel, but it showed all kind of things about the end times. God gave to Daniel both visions and dreams, though he could talk about and reveal the end times. Daniel saw the first coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to die, and he saw the second coming of Jesus Christ to reign. In fact, as you think about it, you remember this is the chart we put up a lot. That's the first coming. Jesus Christ came to the earth, died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again and ascended back to heaven. There's going to be a second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to the earth. This is to the earth. This is to the earth as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to set up a kingdom and he'll rule for a thousand years. Now, we know that after Jesus left, that we're in the church age. And one of these days, Jesus Christ is going to come get us. Daniel did not see that because he did not know anything about the church. In fact, the church was not revealed in the Old Testament. The church was a mystery, as Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, that the church, the information about the body of Christ was not revealed in the Old Testament. So when you start thinking about the comings of Jesus Christ, there are actually three comings of Christ, two to the earth and one in the clouds. Think about this. There's the first one to the earth. There's the second one to the earth, but there's the one that he comes in the clouds. We call that the rapture. Sometimes people get confused, and they'll think that the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, or they'll say, well, Jesus came the first time, then he's going to come the second time. Well, he came the first time to the earth to die. He comes the second time to the earth to reign, but he comes in between in the clouds. And so as we look at that and think about it, it's the first time to die, the second time to reign, and then coming in the clouds to get the church, which is the rapture. That is the next event. You know that could happen any second. It's not like there's signs or anything. The, the signs are for the second coming of Christ to the earth. When you read and people talk about, oh, this is the signs, you can just tell it's, it's the end time. Well, any time after Jesus Christ was the end times, according to the writer of Hebrews. And so Jesus Christ could come at any second. Paul deals with that in this letter. In fact, it mentions the coming of Christ at the end of every chapter. So here's what we're going to do this morning, and we'll go through it fairly quickly. I just want you to see this. Let me get, I'm going to give you a little background on the letter, not much detail. I'll go much more detail next Next week when we talk about 2 Thessalonians because it's the same church, same background. We'll see that more next week. Um, we're going to look at the four key things we do as we await for Christ. And then I've got some questions to challenge us to think about it and uh, uh, how that all fits together. Now, 
I uh, trusted Jesus Christ. Most of you know that I didn't grow up in church, and I went to church once when I was six, once when I was 12, and I went off to college, wandered into a Bible study, and actually they shut the door and I couldn't get out, and that, that was good because I didn't know anything, but that night I understood the message about Christ, and I put my faith in Christ as Savior. I had a good friend. His name was Ray Bridges, and he was uh, a, a good... He it was actually it became my roommate, and he gave me a Bible. It was a, one of those little bitty Bibles, and on the, I opened it up, and at the front it said... Uh, K-L-U. That's what he wrote in there. And I said, Ray, what does that mean? He said, it means keep looking up because Jesus could come at any second. And I said, oh, I didn't know all that. But, you know, because I just trusted Christ. I went, well, that's good to know. Anyway, so when you think about it, uh, the, the, the Bible talks about that he came the first time to down the cross to pay for sin. He's going to come a second time to the earth as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's Revelation 19, uh, verse 11. that goes all the way to verse 20 where he's the King of kings. Both of those are to the earth. But there's going to be a time. Another coming of Christ in the air, not to the earth. We call this the rapture, and that's the chart that we've put up. And so here we are. This is us. Jesus died and rose again, sent it back to heaven. That's his first coming. We're in the church age, and there's no time limit there. There was never certain things. We've already seen from the book of Daniel that God actually gave the Jewish people certain number of years, 490 years. They haven't used them all up yet, but God actually told them years. He didn't tell us any of that. We just know that one of these days, Jesus Christ is going to come in the clouds. The verses that I read for our scripture reading, where it says he'll descend with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ rise first. We who are alive and remain to be caught up together with him. First Thessalonians, that's that passage. That's, that's where Jesus is coming in the clouds. And that's going to happen, and it could happen at any time. So nothing has to be fulfilled. So before today is over, before we get through with this passage, at any second, Jesus could come, and hopefully nobody would be left in here. Now, if you're left in here, trust Jesus, okay? Because that's, that's the bottom line. So let me, give you, let me give you the background of the letter. That's what we want to see. Paul had three missionary journeys. First missionary journey, he went to what is modern-day Turkey. We call that region the Galatian region. That's where he wrote the book the letter to the Galatians. On his second missionary trip, he goes back through that same area, and then he decides he's going to go a certain way, but God won't let him, and he ends up in a place called Troas, and while he's there, he has a vision, and a, in the vision, a man from Macedonia says, come across and come to me. And so he crosses over into what we'd call Europe, and he goes, and he goes to a city called Philippi, named after Alexander the Great's daddy, Philip of Macedon. And so he goes to Philippi, and he leads people to Christ, and he gets run out of town, and he goes to a town called Thessalonica. Still there, by the way, that town's still there. He goes there, and he, the best we can tell, he only taught for three or four weeks there. He led people to Christ, and when he led people to Christ, once again, there was an uproar, and they ran Paul out of town, and Paul goes on to Corinth. And the, the believers who stay in, of course, who live in Thessalonica, they have the church and they begin to meet, but persecution comes. And I mean, they're coming after them. And so Paul finds out about that, that the persecution is great. And when we study both First Thessalonians today, Second Thessalonians starting next week, we're going to see that that's one of the issues. They're being persecuted for their faith. And so he writes to them to encourage these believers. They're undergoing persecution as they stood for Christ. And so basically, he's basically saying, Jesus is coming back one of these days. Here's what we need to do while you stand strong for Christ. Now, in our culture, uh, we don't have the persecution like there's some parts of the world. Uh, 
We have some uh, India pastors that we support. If you go to the mission board, write it down in the bottom. It says pastors from India. They're in southern India, and they're all waving at us and everything. Uh, they're fine unless they start moving toward northern India. And when they do, they, they'll kill them if they proclaim their faith there. And so in southern India, they can do that. There are other parts of the world that when people stand for Christ, there's great persecution. At this time, when Paul led these people to Christ, and he goes from city to city, leading people to Christ, forming churches, they're all being persecuted. So he writes to them and reminds them, look, you've got to stand strong, but one of these days, Jesus is coming back to get us. The letter is filled with that information. I want you to notice something. All five chapters mention his return. Look at chapter 1. Look at verses 9 and 10. Look what it says. I want you to follow this with me. You'll like it. He says, For they themselves report about what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and then watch, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He says, We're waiting for the Son to come. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 19. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exhortation? Is it not you even in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Look at chapter 3. Look at verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Look at chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with a trumpet, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain to be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so, so there it is, he's coming. And then look over at chapter 5, look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace sanctify himself, sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be reserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes throughout this whole letter, five different times he talks about the coming. And there's other places he mentions it. I just want you to see at the end of every chapter he says this. So as we look at this, we want to look at four keys. As we think about waiting for Jesus Christ, that he could come back at any second, what are the things we ought to be doing? Now, it gets pretty practical, and, and, and some of it's hard. In fact, there's a couple of these things that are really hard, I think. And so what should we do as we wait for Christ to return? I've just picked out a few things. There's so many things I could pull out of this book, but I want you to see this. The first thing we should do is serve. We should serve as we await Christ's return. The first thing that Paul mentions is that it will be serving as we look forward to the return of Jesus Christ. He is reminding the Thessalonians of their impact for Christ. He says, you were great examples. Look at chapter 1, look at verse 8. He says, for the word of the Lord has, sur has sur sounded forth from you. He says, the message of Jesus Christ has come forth from the Thessalonican church. Not only in Macedonia but and Achaia, but in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth, so we don't need to even say anything. Paul says, when we start talking to people about Christ, they'll say, oh yeah, we've heard about that church, the Thessalonians. Wouldn't it be something that people would say, oh yeah, we know about that church in Stillwater that presents a clear grace message of salvation. Wouldn't that be great if Paul, somebody would say, well, we've heard about your church because uh, it's going out everywhere. But then look at verse 9. Look what he says. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you. How you turn to God from idols, notice, to serve a living and true God and to wait 
for his son from heaven. They really did three things. They turned to God from idols. In other words, they had believed, they were, they were at all kind of pagan things, and they turned to the true God and they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and that was their salvation. And then they served him. They, they were known as those who were serving the true God as they waited for the son from heaven. That's what they were doing. They were serving God as they were waiting for him to come. And that's the key. What are we supposed to be doing as we wait for Jesus Christ to come? Is there, you know, it, it is the greatest thing of all to get to serve the living God. God has, has chosen us to be his instruments. It's hard to imagine that he would take us. This little, just think about this body. I mean, we can think about all the Christians, but think about this local body. He has chosen us to have an impact for Christ in this community and throughout the world. And he says, I want you to serve me. I mean, before salvation, we couldn't serve God. In fact, remember when we, if we did good things, Isaiah 64, 6 says that the righteousness of man's filthy rags. But then when we trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, then Paul says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when people talk about the return to Christ, there are two extremes. One, one is a lot more than the other. The first one is this, is that people never think about his return. In fact, there's a whole bunch of people that don't even know. They, they haven't studied end times. We told you when we studied the book of Daniel that there's so many people who will say, end times, oh, we don't know. Well, one day Jesus is going to come back. That's all we know. They don't know about it. They didn't really put together the first coming, the second coming, the rapture. They didn't know anything about the tribulation, the antichrist, any of those things. And so some people, when you start taking the, talking about what should you be doing as you wait for Christ to come back, they go, I don't even think about that. I don't even think about him coming. I, don't, I mean, maybe he'll come, maybe he won't. So that's one, and I think that's a lot of people. There's another one that's happened sometimes, and that's that they stop everything expecting his coming. Now, that happened in Thessalonica, by the way. We're going to see it a little bit. We'll see some of it starting next week. But there were some believers in Thessalonica that said, if Jesus is coming back soon, we're not even going to work. We'll just wait for him to come. In fact, he could come any second, so we'll let other people feed us. That's why Paul had to write, if you don't work, you don't. Eat. He wrote that in there because they weren't... I remember it was about, uh, about 15 years ago, there was a group in Arkansas that moved to a mountain and said that they thought Jesus would be coming uh, within, within a week or two, and they, they, they left their homes, they left everything, and just moved up on top of this mountain. Of course, he didn't come. I don't know what they did after that. But sometimes that's an extreme, one way or the other. You never think about he's coming, or you just think, he's coming right now, so I'm not going to do anything. Well, we should be doing something, and that is to serve the living God. Now, how do we do that? The key is this. The key is you offer your life. Now, let me, let me make this very clear. Offering your life has nothing to do with salvation. That's a confused message. Salvation is a gift by faith alone in Christ alone. It's nothing. We trust in him. He's already done it all. It's, it's not our goodness or our works. It's by grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. So when we talk about serving God, we're not talking anything about salvation. We already saved. We're talking about what do we do as believers, and that is to offer our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. So if you want to make an impact for Christ... As we wait for him, you say to God, I give you my life. I want my life to count for you. I'll go wherever you want to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I want to serve you until you come. I told you I trusted Christ when I was 19 in that, that night, basically actually going to get a hamburger after the Bible study. I trusted Christ. But at 19, I trusted Christ. But I did not start to grow, and I did not 
offer my life in service until I was coaching at Mississippi State like six years later. And at, at that point in time in my life, at about six years later, I said to God, I give you my life in service. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. My whole life changed after that. So for all of us in this room, I hope and pray that every one of you have put your faith in Christ as Savior and you have eternal life and you're saved and you're saved forever. This is different. This is saying now, as a believer, what are you supposed to do as you wait Jesus, for Jesus to come get us? He says to serve him and the best way to do it is say, Lord, I give you my life. I want to serve you. I want to live for you. I want to go wherever you want me to go. I want to do whatever you want me to do. So here's the key. Are you and I serving as we wait? And by the way, some people think serving is going to church. Serving's not going to church. church. Church is preparing you to serve. We're equipping the saints to do the ministry. When we come on a Sunday morning, we always say it is to worship our God and Savior and to be trained and equipped to serve him. That's the key. So the first thing is as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ, we're to serve him. There's the second one. And the second one is be faithful. Be faithful. And he's really talking about using the gifts, talents, and abilities that we have. And I want you to see in chapter 2, in verse 19, Paul says this, and I'll put it up here. He says, for what is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not you? Paul is basically saying when we stand before Jesus Christ and he rewards us, it's going to be because you were faithful and that we led you to Christ and you're our joy and you're our crown and you're our hope. And he's saying they, they were faithful believers. Paul had been a faithful believer. And so what Paul is saying is this, Paul would be rewarded by God because of these believers, because he was faithful. And so the bottom line is, are we faithful? As believers, we're to be faithful. And that's the key to this whole thing. The truth is this, and let me just remind you of this. We, when Jesus Christ comes, we'll stand before him. Now, that sounds scary, and it sort of is. Romans 14 says, each one of us get an account of ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded for the things we've done in this body, whether good or worthless. The truth is this, because we know Jesus Christ is Savior, because we're his children, because he's gifted us, one day we'll stand before him. It has nothing to do with salvation, and it has nothing to do with sin. Sin has already been placed on Christ. When we stand before Christ, it's going to be based on how we served him or did we serve him. We want to hear him say, what? Well done, good and faithful servant. We don't want to be ashamed at his coming. And so this, the, the bottom line is he says, look, you're my joy, my crown, my exaltation. He's saying, when I stand before Christ because of the faithfulness of the Thessalonians and because of false faithful life, uh, that there's going to be rewards. And that's the key there. And, and that's what we want to hear. What? Well done good and faithful servant. So what is required of us as believers? First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Moreover, brethren, it is required of stewards to be found faithful. Now, this helps me a lot. Here's why. He didn't say it's required of believers, stewards, to be successful. He said faithful. He didn't say they're required to be smart, handsome, tall, have hair, any of that. He said, that's not in the requirements. The requirements is just be what? Faithful. Wherever we are, whatever your gifts and talents and abilities are, it doesn't matter. Wherever God puts you, all he said for you to do is to be faithful. And the Thessalonians were faithful. Paul was faithful. And he's saying, I'm rejoicing because as we wait for the Lord, when, when he comes, you're my crown. You're my joy. You're my hope. He's saying, because of what you've done and because of this. And so the same thing for us, we would say, listen, when, when he comes, all, all we care about is him saying, you were faithful. 
That's what we want. And so here's kind of the question is, what are, what are your gifts and talents and abilities? How are you being faithful to be used by God now? We talked about serving him. That's the first one. The second one has to do with using the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given us. And so what are your gifts and talents and abilities? And how can you serve? How can you touch lives for Jesus Christ as we await his return? There's a third thing. First one, be serving. Second one, be faithful. Here's the third one, and this is a hard one. Be holy as we await Christ's return. We live in such a fallen world and a fallen culture that we're just being bombarded all the time. Look at, um, let me put this, I'm going to put this. Look at chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. He says, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in your love for one another and for all the people so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God at his coming. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to love one another. He says, with blameless and holiness before God at his coming. The goal for us as believers is to live godly and righteously. We talked about this in Sunday school because we're talking about temptation in Sunday school, or grow groups is what we call them. But we were talking about this. So people say, well, it doesn't matter whether you live right or wrong or anything. You're going to heaven. Well, no, you're going to heaven is based on faith in Christ and not your lifestyle. But the goal as a believer is to grow to be more like Christ, to be sanctified, as we call it. Sanctification literally means to be set apart. That's what it is. And that's when he said that he may establish your hearts in holiness. That's the word hagios in the Greek, which has the idea of being set apart, to be holy. That's the idea. This is called progressive sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ. When you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you're saved and saved forever. Then this Christian life in which you're supposed to be growing to be more and more like Christ until he comes to get us is called progressive sanctification. We're being set apart, growing as a Christian more and more and more every day. That's the plan. Now, it's usually like this. You know, it's not just like that. It would be wonderful if it was, but it's not. We're up and down. But here's what he says to do. I want you to grow. I want you to be holy people. That's the plan. Romans 8, 29, be conformed to the image. First Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Look at this. This is in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Look what he says. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your, what? Sanctification, being set apart. And then he explains it. That is... You abstain from sexual immorality. In, the, in Europe at that time, in, in Macedonia and northern and southern Greece, at that time, I mean, the whole idea of uh, sexual things were just out of control. And he's saying, listen, you've got to be holy people. You've got to be holy people in this area as well. And our culture is out of control. Well, what do, how do we do it? Well, I, I put down things. First of all, you study the Bible. You've got to get the Scripture. You've got to put it in your brain. You've got to know it. You've got to study to show yourself approved. A workman need not be ashamed. You're approved to God. A workman need not be ashamed. You've got to take the truths of the Bible and be able to put them in your mind and understand them. And then, as Philippians 4, verse 9 says, you've got to apply those truths in your life. Not only do you know it, but you've got to apply it. And that's where Psalms 119 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you as you know the Bible, as you you put it in your brain, when the temptations, when the problems come, we can have victory. We can, we can live righteously and godly. We can be a holy person. The third thing is living in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Walk in the Spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're to live righteously and godly. That is the plan. Look at this. This is in chapter 5, verse 22. He says, abstain from every form 
of evil. Actually says appearance. He's saying be careful. Even as Christians, something may not be wrong, but it may look wrong. So be careful on how you come across to the rest of the world, to this community in the world. How do you live as a believer? Be a blameless child of God. Notice verse 23 of chapter 5. Look how he ends this. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, set you apart, that's holiness, entirely, and that your spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved blamelessly, complete without blame, that's holy, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're supposed to be holy people. And so when you think about it, we're supposed to be serving, we're supposed to be faithful, we're supposed to be holy. So as we wait for Christ to come back, are you serving? Are you faithful using your gifts, talents, and abilities? Are we being set apart and living and growing to be more and more like Christ? Well, that takes us to one more. And, and the, the one more is really about my favorite one, and that is to be comforting to others as we wait Christ's returns. And how does he comfort them? Remember, they're going through great persecution and he reminds them the way, the way to comfort someone is to go to the Bible, remind them of the biblical truths. And Paul comforts the Thessalonians with the truth, especially dealing with the rapture. When they are going through great persecution, he says, you're going through great persecution, but one of these days, Jesus is going to come get you. And he's going to take you off the face of this earth. Now, if you've already died, your body's going to be raised up. If you're not died, you're going to be changed. And that's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who've already died. See, some people told them that if people died before Jesus came back, those people wouldn't get to go. And he said, no, 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 everybody's going. Everybody's going. So don't worry about that. But I love verses 16 and 17. We read those, but look what it says. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. I wonder what the shout will be. You think he'll go, hello, I'm coming. Who knows? This is the rapture. Now, this is not the second coming. The second coming, he comes riding on a white horse as king of kings, lord of lords. Heaven's open, a sword comes out of his mouth. He's coming to bring judgment. That's the second coming. This is the rapture. This happens just like that. In a moment of twinkle and eye, First Corinthians says, in a moment of twinkle and eye, we'll be changed, we'll be gone. This one says that he's going to have a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and then the dead will be raised, and we will be caught up together in the clouds. It's going to happen just like this. It's going to happen so fast, it just, we'll just all be gone all of a sudden. And so what will he say? What will be the shout? What will be the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God? And then he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And then he says this, we'll always be with the Lord. And then look what he says, because it's, it's so powerful. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Let me tell you, there are a lot of places in the Bible that if you help people understand them, you'll be able to comfort them. There are people who will say to me, I, uh, I was reading something and they said that there was going to be this antichrist and the whole world's going to be terrible. I hope I don't take the mark of the beast and I can say, listen, you know Christ is your Savior, you won't be here. Oh, that's good. Or you talk to somebody and they say, what happened to, uh, what happened to my aunt when she died? And we talk about it and they say, well, she had believed in Jesus as her Savior. I said, well, to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. And she goes, wow, I feel a lot better. Sometimes when we talk and we teach people from the Bible, it comforts them. Listen, what if you thought that you had to hang in there to be saved? 
if I can just live righteously, if I can just do the best I can do, if I can try to keep the Ten Commandments. You know, and I'm trying the best I can. I just don't know if I can make it. And then one day you hear that, look, it's not based on you. It's, it's a gift from God. By grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. When you trust Jesus, he gives you eternal life, and you're saved, and so you're saved forever. And it's not based on your faithfulness. Is that not comforting? Yeah. So when we look at the Bible, sometimes as we await the return of Christ, we can comfort one another. So here's a question. Who, who are you investing your life in? Who are you teaching the Bible to? Who are you taking the truth? 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, take what you've been taught and, and teach others. Who are you helping understand truths from the Bible that would comfort them as we await the return of Jesus Christ? So what should they be doing? What does Paul say? He says they should be serving, using their lives. They should be faithful, using their gifts. They should be holy, being like Christ. And they should be comforting, teaching each other the word. So for us, let's make some applications. First thing, are we serving? Have we offered our lives for the service of God? Think about it. Where are you? Now, I trust Christ. I have to tell you this, and I'll go fast because I know time is almost up. When I trusted Christ as Savior, I knew I was saved. I was saved forever. As time went by, I realized that probably I should be living for Christ, but I was afraid to. I was actually afraid because I thought that, because see, what I wanted to be was a coach, and so I said, I want to be a coach, but if I said to God, I want to live for you, like I have to be a pastor or, or a missionary or something like that, and I didn't want to be that, so I was actually afraid to say to God, I give you my life because I was afraid he'd make me do something I didn't want to do. But I came to the point where I said, I do want to live for you. I want my life to count for you. And guess what? I, I get to do exactly what I want to do. He changed my desires. And so now if you said, would you rather be a coach or a pastor? I go, oh, I'd much rather be a pastor. I don't want to be a coach. God changed my desires. Listen, Romans 12.1, offer our lives. If, this is a tough decision now. Let me just say this to you. As a believer, if, never made, if you've never... As at, you're, you're saved and you're saved forever, but if you've never come to the point where you say, Lord, I want you to take my life and use me for your glory. Now, that's a big decision because he takes you at your word and you offer yourself to him. He'll take you and use you beyond what you could imagine. Second thing, are we being faithful? Are we using the gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given us? The key is not our gifts. The key is our faithfulness. There will be a time that you and we, each one of us will stand before Jesus Christ. The third thing, are we holy? Are we becoming more and more like Christ? Do you have time that you're studying the Bible? You're putting it together. You're making application. You're living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're growing to be more and more like Christ. And last but not least, are we comforting others? Are we taking the truths of the Bible? And are we passing those on over? And let me tell you, especially, especially end time events and especially the idea of the gospel because there's so many people who are so confused on the salvation message, they don't know whether they're saved or not. And there's so many people that don't know anything about the end times. You can help comfort people. So as we await, let's offer our lives in service. Let's be faithful to use our gifts and talents. Let's become more and more like Christ as we know and apply the word. And let's pass on biblical truths to comfort others.